everyone, welcome to the Inspire to Fire podcast. My name is Chris and I'm your host. And this show is all about inspiring you towards reaching financial independence. And we do that by interviewing some amazing guests every week and having them share their story as well as sharing their strategies towards reaching financial freedom. If you're new to the episodes uh, or to the show, go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And uh, if you're a repeat listener, welcome back. You can go ahead and support the show by sharing this episode with a friend or any others and uh, taking a listen at all the episodes from previous. This is the second season. And so we've got a ton of episodes that you can check out from season one. A lot of great interviews there. So today we've got Terry from The Financial Gym, and she is talking to us about taking control of your money and how to fight lifestyle inflation. So she's going to be talking to us about the tools that she uses like automation, reverse budgeting, and different mindset shifts as well to motivate you to reach your FIRE goals. And she does this for a living over at The Financial Gym, and she really helps the average person get out of credit card debt or any sort of debt that they have and start accomplishing some real financial goals that they have, whether that's investing or saving for a down payment for a house, or even just taking care of that emergency fund, that three to six emergency fund uh, month emergency fund. So she does a lot of great things and she helps the average person and she's coming on to drop a lot of that knowledge on to for us, the listeners. So with that said, I do want to let you know that in the description below, you can find a link to personal capital. It is an affiliate link. However, it's completely free to you. And this link will take you to a dashboard where you can track your net worth for free. And you actually get a $20 Amazon gift card as well once you link one investment account containing at least $1,000 within 30 days. I can't recommend it highly enough. Personal capital is something I used and I actually just set up uh, my friend who's like a brother to me on this personal capital dashboard. This allowed him to see everything that was going on with his money. I'm talking credit card debt, uh, cash flow, budgeting. He was able to check out his investments. He was actually able to see how much his investments were costing him over time because he has some investments with a financial advisor that are in about some funds that are in about 1.7, 1.5 expense ratios. And using personal capital, we were able to see how much that was going to cost him over the next 20 to 30 years. And so some alarming figures here, but over 20 years, his fees in these investment funds were going to cost him $400,000. And over 30 years, he was going to pay $1.5 million in fees, in fees alone. And that, I think, really made an impact on him. And that's the reason why I highly recommend using something like personal capital. Again, it allows you to track your debt, your investments, your cash flow, your budgeting. It's a great tool and it's for free, your net worth. And uh, again, you get a $20 Amazon gift card using the link below. So go ahead and take advantage of that. And hopefully it'll help you keep track of your finances just that much better. And actually the net worth tracker is super addictive. It's something that I'm always seeing how I can improve my net worth. And I love just tracking it over the months and the years, seeing it grow. So again, I highly recommend this tool. All right. So now let's get into the episode with Terry. She starts off right away telling us about her money story and how FU money took her from a crappy job making $13,000 a year to having $100,000 invested in five years. So again, I hope you guys enjoy and uh, I'll catch you at the end of the episode. I mean, I guess like the short timeline is I grew up super poor and teenage parents who, you know, had like just no one had a 
high, high school education, right? And so I had parents who like worked really hard, but never were really able to sort of like, they didn't know anything about money and they didn't really have like, they didn't have the tools that they needed to really succeed financially and were not, and, and, and dealt with all the things that happens when you like live in poverty, right? Because there's a lot of like compounding situations. Um, I'm sure like, you know, how there, there is like a poor tax, right? Like when you're able to go to Costco and get six months worth of this product, it's this much per unit as opposed to like if you're only able to afford one, you know, there's just all of the different like compounding aspects of that. And just kind of like seeing how not free my parents were, um, like turned me into a really good saver and somebody who, who like dealt with money really differently. And then also just kind of seeing a bunch of people I grew up with kind of like grow up and make kind of the very typical financial decisions people make, but what I would consider pretty typical financial mistakes super mm -hmm. early. So like I was able, you know, I was 17 and 18 and I was able to be traveling around the country and, you know, traveling internationally. And I would invite my friend, like, come visit me. I'm, I'm going to live in Colorado for a while. Come visit and no one could because everybody had a car payment or they had like gone to Macy's and they'd financed a bunch of like furniture for their first apartment. So I saw really early on that there were just so many people I knew and really loved, but who also had no freedom because they had kind of like financed sort of like a, a normal middle-class life from the age of like 18, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And so that gave me like a really different sense of what I wanted to do with my money. I didn't learn anything about money growing up other than there's probably never going to be enough of it. And then kind of like as a reaction to my parents' financial situation, save as much of it as you can so that you can like be free and do things. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I, I kind of, I kind of joke that I had this, like, I didn't know about fire at all, but like, I had the frugality part down to a science. Like I was <laughs> living in New York city on like, you know, waiting tables and bartending and like all these kind of like cool, fun jobs that I had like in my twenties. And I would just like work somewhere, not, you know, bank all of my money, go travel in Thailand for six months and then like come back. I was never investing, mm -hmm. but I was, just, you know, I was like saving tons of money, doing a fun thing with it. And then like, <laughs> and then like coming back and doing it over again. And eventually I wound up having this super crappy job and I really hated it. And it was really toxic and sort of like abusive. I was just like a, I was working in an art handling company. So I was kind of, I was coordinating the movement of like, mil like very, very expensive art pieces but I was often like on the bottom rung of this like social ladder where you have all these like super wealthy, like art collectors and their personal assistants and stuff. And it was just like really a terrible, people yell at you constantly and everybody is always super stressed out. And I realized I, it was like 2010 and I just, 2011, I guess I couldn't quit because I didn't have any money. And so I just decided to like what I called rage work. Like I was taking every shift and working every extra hour I could and working odd hours or whatever. And just because I wanted to get that, I wanted to have like FU money because I knew that one day something was going to happen and I was going to be like, okay, great. I've had enough. I'm going to get out of here. And so that did happen. And I kind of think about that as like my first retirement because I had saved up enough money that 
Hurricane Sandy happened, actually, and I started doing disaster relief volunteering. And I really loved it, and it felt really purposeful, and the work that we were doing was really rewarding and impactful in a number of people's lives. And I had the money to just quit my job and become a full-time volunteer. I mean, I was working probably like 18 hours a day or something, (laughs) but that was like actually this awesome version of retirement to me because it was like, I can spend my time just doing the most rewarding thing maybe that I've ever done because I have... I had saved up enough money for kind of like a mini retirement, right? Like, you know how Paula Pant says, like, retire early and often? Yes. But I was able to basically finance like a pretty long period of time where I, you know, could live off of very little money because of the savings choices I had made leading up to that. And I sort of, to make a long story short, God, I don't know how to, the best transition, To make a long story short, a couple of things happened at that point in time. One of them being that once I came out of that particular time period, um, our incomes went up a lot because we were not working for free anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Unsurprisingly, our incomes went up a lot. But all of a sudden, I realized, like, I was like, okay, a year went past. I I went from, I mean, 2013, my tax return showed that I made $13,000 right? Because I had worked so little for money. And then, you know, 2014 comes along and between my partner and I, we've made like $100,000 because we both kind of went back to working normal jobs. And I was like, wait a minute, we don't have anything to show for this. Like basically it was just like lifestyle and like 100% lifestyle inflation. I was like, if we were able to live off of like $13,000 for a year or probably between the two of us, like $30,000 for a year, um, in New York City, like in order to pursue something that we really love doing, like why aren't we defining our goals and then adjusting our lifestyle so that we can just keep doing that, right? Like right, right. instead we were kind of starting to take on like a car payment and like, the, you know, the little, the little things that creep in like that we yeah. hadn't had before. And to make a long story short, we wound up getting really disciplined about saving Found out the fire movement existed because I was like, wait, we have more money than we need. We're not living paycheck to paycheck. And, you know, like all of a sudden we had this like extra money. And I was like, well, what do you do with extra money? And I started (laughs) learning about it. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, There's like a whole group of people who are already doing this thing that I thought we like invented. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And they're doing it way better than we are because they're also investing part of the money <laughs> and so that they can perpetuate this. So that was kind of a messy explanation. No, definitely. And you hit on a lot of different topics I want to kind of unpack because yeah. they're so interesting, but it seems as though you had the foundational, you know, the foundational pieces, the principles correct from a very young age. And mm-hmm. um, that might've helped you in this transition to, realizing what to do. I think the bridge was you were saving, but you weren't necessarily investing, which I see a lot of people, including myself, kind of get into that where there's extra money. So you say, I know I need a savings account, but there's no purpose for that money other than maybe a vacation or a big purchase item. But with the fire movement, it seems, you know, that's what gives that money purpose to kind of motivate you to continue going. So talk to me a little bit about what happened after the $13,000 a year 
time period to then when you started investing and realizing you wanted to do this fire movement journey? Yeah, well, you know, I was partnered up. And so probably between the two of us, I made like $13,000. He made a little more than I did that year. But you know, I had this $13,000 year. All of a sudden, um, I kind of went back to work for a slightly more normal salary. If I had to guess, I would say, I actually forget, but I bet I was making like $50,000 the following year. But as you, obviously, that's like tripling my income at this point <laughs> between me and my partner. Um, like our income probably quadrupled. And so, you know, like we did some fun, cool stuff. I mean, we had six destination weddings to go to that year. That was like, I, I think everybody kind of has that year where everybody they know gets married, but we had six destination weddings where it's like Boulder, Colorado and Costa Rica and San Diego. And like, you know, we, we were in a situation we didn't have to say no to any of them. Right. And so we wound up saying kind of like, yes to all that. And we were in a situation where we never had to say no to going out to dinner anymore because we had the money. And so we were just doing that and that was nice and that's fun. But then there was, we needed a new car at the time. My partner was in construction and, um, his work changed a lot. And so, you know, instead of doing what we'd done in the past where we got like an old beater, we had a car with payments. And then, oh, when you have payments, the insurance really goes up a lot, right? Like yeah. all of the different things and just kind of taking on more and more and more expenses. And I just felt like we were buying more and more and more stuff. And one of the things that happened was my partner becoming, well, two things happened. One is I remember a random Tuesday. I remember it was a Tuesday, even though it was like five years ago. Um, it was a random Tuesday and we just didn't have a lot of groceries in the house. And so we were like, let's go across the street and we'll get dinner at that new restaurant across the street. And so it was Tuesday. We had like a drink, a salad, an entree, and maybe like another drink after work, but it, it's New York City. So that's like $150. <laughs> Um, and I was just like, okay, cool. So we just spent 150 bucks on a Tuesday afternoon at a meal that we were like looking at our phones and answering work emails during, like, it, it's not even, I'm, I'm fine with spending 150 bucks to celebrate something or cause it's a special occasion or because that's what you really want to do. But we were just doing it cause we were like out of vegetables, right? And <laughs> that's not a good reason to do it. And I just started thinking like, what could we be doing better? My partner started getting really interested in buying a house or an apartment because New York um, was just getting more and more and more expensive and we were starting to feel like we might get priced out. But I really felt like I wanted to go into that situation as educated as possible because I've seen a lot of people get in way over their head with, more, with mortgages. And, you know, I wanted to make sure that we understood as much as possible about like how much we should be spending, how much, what, you know, what price properties we should be looking at. And in the process of sort of asking the question, like, what should we do with our extra money? And like, what's a good home buying scenario for us? I discovered the fire movement and I, you know, started looking at what those numbers looked like. And it really changed my idea of like what, what we should be spending if we were looking for a house, because I don't know if you own a home or if you've ever gone through the process of seeing a broker or something. I mean, the the size mortgage that we were approved for was completely insane. Like, I guess we could have paid it if we'd given up eating or <laughs> like other hobbies <laughs> that we have. Um, but it was really just kind of an insane amount of money. And I was, then we just, just, you know, we created some parameters like 
it was important for us to save close to 50% of our income. And so we wanted a mortgage that didn't infringe on us doing that. Um, as you might have guessed <laughs> from my description of my younger, my like twenties, I had not started saving for retirement and neither had he. And so it was really important to us that we were able to like max out all of our retirement vehicles every year. So we wound up taking like the amount of money that we were making subtracting our savings goals and then using the remainder as a guideline for what we could afford, mm -hmm. which is something that I don't think anyone does outside of the fire movement. Do you know what I mean? Because you walk into the broker and it's like, okay, you know, you guys make this much money. You can get a mortgage that's this much money. And, you know, if that's the kind of house you start looking at, it's, it's very likely you're going to get pretty infatuated with some of those $800,000 houses, if that's what they tell you that you can afford. <laughs> Do you know it's, what I mean? <laughs> it's so true. And I think that's something that we need to work on uh, with financial literacy. It comes down to kind of yeah. spreading the message that your broker or what you get approved for is not what necessarily is best for you. I mean, yeah. they, they have their own interests as well. And, you know, some brokers are doing the right thing and some are really trying to get commissions. I mean, this is how they yeah. make money as well. So if they want to approve you for a house that's way over your head, that's kind of like something that they may not necessarily enjoy pushing you towards, but they're not going to tell you no if you've been approved for it and you want it. So yeah, I think that's that's super important. And then what you're doing with the budgeting, I love too, because it's kind of like a reverse budget. You just <laughs> subtract, you get rid of the things like your 401k, maybe that was automatic. Uh, your savings trans transfers were automatic, etc. So you kind of are left with what you know you really should be spending after you know everything else. So it's kind of a reverse of the budget where you kind of allot everything. So I love I love that idea. I think it's kind of like a forced scarcity idea. It's also it's really hard to deflate an inflated lifestyle. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's really yep. hard to downsize your expectations about like what life should look like, how comfortable it should be, that kind of stuff. It's much easier to put some brakes on lifestyle inflation than it is to, to do the reverse later on. Definitely. And I, I joke around a lot with my friends and sometimes I tell them I don't want to fly first class, even though I know it'd be amazing. But that amazing <laughs> experience is going to just, when I have to go back to coach, it's going to be awful. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually true. I um, am pretty into travel hacking and my husband and I are, are having a very amicable separation right now. So I keep calling him my partner because it's a weird time. But uh, And I'm fine. But just in case my language around it seems weird, that's why. But he was kind of like, you spend so much time doing this. Like, what do you think your ROI is on like how much time you're spending doing all of this? Because you're like reading Reddit subreddits and like watching I don't know, reading blogs and podcasts and so I was like hmm, he doesn't think that my ROI is high enough I'll show him and so when we were like doing one of like we had to do some of our travels I wound up getting like first class tickets and I got this like 1200 euro hotel room in Paris and it's funny because it did it was really successful at getting him into helping with the travel hacking which is much easier to do when you're not doing it for two people um with somebody helping you but it did raise the ante because all of a sudden he definitely never wanted to fly coach again. Like he really didn't ever want, like he always wanted the 1200 euro hotel room in Paris. And um, 
that was something I was able to cut. I mean, as long as we were doing it with points and miles, I was kind of fine <laughs> doing that. But so. it, it is so hard. And, the, and that, that's part of the journey as well is kind of learning the human psychology behind your financial decisions. Because I feel like in marketing and uh, with corporations, there's teams and millions of dollars on their end to try to get us to psychologically convince ourselves that we need this or we need that yeah. and, and to spend. So we should try every once in a while to counter that marketing and effort, in, in my opinion. And that's just the way I do it, but I know it could be done in many ways. Yeah, I was just having a conversation with someone about something like that. Like a lot of times when I'm looking at people spending, like in my job at Financial Gym, and we're trying to figure out like where there's areas for improvements and people are kind of like, well, it's like if you go through their list of purchases, they're like, but I needed that and I needed that because of this. And it's like, did you need a new salt and pepper shake? I mean, you know what I mean? Like they're thinking, it's like, those are useful items and they're normal items to own. You also already own them. So, I mean, I don't know if because you painted your kitchen green, you needed new, you know what I mean? But like, mm -hmm. it's, you, it's, it's important to differentiate between what you need and what is useful because there's a whole world of very useful gadgets out there. You know? <laughs> like, I think that you could have a different kitchen instrument for every type of vegetable you'd ever need to slice. Definitely. Right? Right? Definitely. Or have a knife. <laughs> for having a knife. <laughs> because I Yep, it's it's so true. Um, you know, it's those late night infomercials that you know solve <laughs> a very specific problem that you had, and you sh you're you're just co convinced basically that that is a great product, and then you use it once or twice, and it's in storage. Yeah. <laughs> but um, getting back to your story and and kind of the transition, what advice would you give to someone who wants to maybe do the same as what you've done? It seems as though. What decision did, did you make, I guess, with the house? Did you end up purchasing or did you end up renting? And what advice would you give somebody? Would you tell them to align their goals, align their spending habits with what their goals are or find a why? Which one would you go with, I guess? Yeah, I mean, if someone is interested in just getting really serious about a different kind of financial pursuit, first of all, I do think that the why is really important. Like. I mean, A, just being a person in our world, I know that like saving for the sake of saving is not motivating for a lot of people. It's really motivating for me. Like I think of it as like a, I'm beating myself at a game. Like, oh, if I only, you know, like I can beat last week's grocery score. You know? <laughs> and that is motivating to me. It is really not motivating to a lot of people. And it feels like a limit and a constraint and people will rebel against that. But what is motivating, I think, relatively universally is like reaching a goal that you have set for yourself and also having personal freedom, I think is something that's pretty universally rewarding. And so knowing what it is that you want to work for, like in my case, I don't think I'll ever actually retire. I just, within like the next eight to 10 years, would love to not care how much money I made and only take work that I thought was really impactful. So to me, that's retirement, right? Because I don't have to get up and, I don't know, I, like I'm literally guiding my principles, my values, and my desires would be guiding how I spent every day. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, what all of us want in retirement, right? Like most of us, I don't really think, want to sit in like a, you know, like a beach chair and drink cocktails 
all day, every day for the entire rest of our lives. When we do want to do that, it's because we're really worn out from the things that we do for work and for money. But I would say in the very beginning, I mean, some of the most powerful things that you can do are know where your money goes. So really track your spending and track all of it. I have, the way I do it is very, uh, (laughs) very pen and paper, but I just take like a giant piece of newsprint and I like tape it to my wall and I take, I just tape a magic marker to the wall so that every time I walk back through my door, I write down like, $2.25 $2.25 for coffee, $16 at the farmer's market, you know, mm-hmm, whatever mm-hmm. I've spent. And it's funny because I've had people come in my house and they're like, you write down when you spend a dollar. And I was like, well, <laughs> I mean, if I'm tracking my spending, I do. I don't, <laughs> like, it got spent. So it has to go on the list, you know? And then one time I had lunch for $1 and they were like, where are you getting $1? I had some kind of- I don't remember what it was, but so anyway, like actually knowing where all of your money goes is really important to knowing a, if your spending is in alignment with your values, B, how much you have left over. And without knowing how much you have left over, you don't know what you can accomplish, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You have to know that. I also would say that reverse budgeting has, or like anti-budgeting has worked really well for me. And it particularly worked really well for my partner because he felt like he really hated the arbitrary constraints of saying like, we only spend $125 a week on food. And he's kind of like not motivated to stay within that limit because we may, I mean, we make enough money to spend as, you know, Mm-hmm. more than $125 a week. So whatever. But what he was really motivated by, and I think what, what has worked really well for me is like automating away all of the goal stuff. I mean, so anyway, we automate away like our house, obviously, our mortgage, obviously, but then also the savings and also the retirement savings and then also any investing you're doing. And then whatever is left over, you can do whatever you want with. Like you're 100% free to spend that remaining money any way you want to, mm-hmm. right? But I don't even see any of the other money. It's never in my checking account. I never have to make a decision about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that it eliminates like people have talked more in the last couple of years about decision fatigue. We are making decisions every single second of every single day. Like, what are you going to wear? What are you going to eat? When are you going to do this? What are you, you know, like, and that's not even counting the big decisions that you have to make throughout like your day in life that are super impactful. It's one of the reasons why people recommend like a capsule wardrobe or people who have just like one thing that they wear every day because you have all these other things to think about, right? And so like, you don't want to also think about that, but like automate everything. You don't want to, maybe you don't want to leave it up to you, particularly when you're new at this process to like every Friday when you get paid, make the good decision. Just make the good decision right now. Mm-hmm. Go to your ally account. Make sure that you do the recurring contribution <laughs> into your savings account and you never have to think about it again. No, that's a great point. And just to kind of uh, highlight some things is you don't feel guilty about what you spend you know, when you spend the leftovers anyways, because you know, you've automatically made those right decisions. So there, it eliminates that guilt of spending at least in certain aspects as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I really like food and I really like going out to restaurants. I don't want to feel guilty about that at all. I did realize in the very beginning stages of my, my spending tracking, there was a lot of like shitty Thai food in my, <laughs> in, my, in my bank statement. Do you know what I mean? Because that was like a really easy thing to get like lunch at work or on the way home. 
something like, or like if I stopped and had a couple of drinks with someone and I was feeling a little lazy for cooking, you know, you can always stop at that place and it's 15 bucks. It's not breaking the bank. But at the same time, when I looked at like all of the instances of the $15 shitty Thai food, I was like, oh, if I just was more organized about making sure that my lunch was always prepared or if I meal prepped on Sundays, like all of those $15 Thai dinners could have been like $150 Michelin starred restaurant. Do you know what I mean? Like that could Mm -hmm. have been a completely different experience that I'd remember. Like I don't even actually want to be eating like not great for you takeout, you know? And so it's actually contrary to like what I want. That was a really kind of like pivotal point in, I think about in like my financial path was just having that Tuesday night dinner where we were just like, didn't have groceries and like, you know, cause we hadn't done any kind of like shopping or meal prepping. And we'd like just had this nice dinner that we weren't celebrating or anything at all. We were just like having it, taking it for granted, not even really like looking at each other or thinking about anything. And that was like, okay, that's not really, that doesn't really make me feel great. Here I am like down 150 bucks, but I kind of have nothing to show for it. Or when I first started tracking my spending, um, you know, we live in New York and a lot of people's houses and apartments are so small. You really don't really have people over all the time. You might just meet out. And I lived across the street from really the cheapest bar in the neighborhood. It was a really like easy place to go get like a four or $5 drink, which is kind of unheard of at this point in New York. So I treated it very much like my living room, right? And so if people people were like, hey, I'm in your neighborhood, it's like, oh, great, meet me across the street. And then we just have a couple of drinks, which is what, maybe like $12 or $14, you know, like with tip, blah, blah, blah. But then the next thing you know, after you have a few drinks, you don't really want to like go home and make dinner and wash dishes and it's already late, whatever. So that would lead to like takeout. And when I started tracking my spending, you know, if you would have asked me at that point in time, like, do you have an extra $250 a month to put on your student loans? I would have said no. But if you, when I looked at my bank statements, I had to admit that I was spending $250 a month at the alibi across the street from my house, you know, Mm -hmm. and so, and or adjacent spending because a couple of beers makes you feel a little lazy about cooking, right? right? And so I had to sort of acknowledge that, I thought I had dialed a lot of things back because I'd eliminated the $150 dinners and I wasn't doing the $15 at a time mm-hmm. Thai food that added up, you know, to $50 a week or whatever. Um, but I hadn't really thought about this bar because it was just like four and $5 beers, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's pretty innocent. And so I just kind of saw one by one, like places that I didn't necessarily feel great about all my money going. And then as I developed, I further developed kind of the Phi goal you know, it's not that I never do those things. I had dinner with a friend last night and I, you know, saw some people this weekend who I'm not going to see for a while. And I probably, it's more money than I would normally spend, but it's within my budget, mm-hmm. right? Then the money I have left over after I've already contributed to all my other goals. So I really have no reason to feel bad about that because I've already prioritized my principles and values in future. And I think that that's super powerful. People often think that the fire life <laughs> or like the fire goal makes you limited all the time. And I feel like just really the opposite is true. I mean, I have had, I had the opportunity last year, I wound up having a lot of freedom in terms of my work life and had done a lot of travel hacking. So I had a lot of freedom in terms of, you know, having a lot of resources that would help me afford a lot of travel. And so I wound up traveling for like nine weeks of last year. I'm able to do that 
because that's two and a half months of vacation, right? I mean, that's like, if you want to talk about constraints and limits, it's like having to stay, having to go to work <laughs> to pay for your, you know, <laughs> to pay for your credit card bills sounds a lot more constraining to me than like saving all of your money so you can travel for nine weeks. Definitely, definitely. And then 2020, traveling for nine weeks sounds like a dream. <laughs> so. Yeah, <laughs> true. Um, but that, yeah, and I think that that was something that was like striking, particularly like early on in my life. And so kind of made me develop these like knee-jerk good habits. Like when I was in my early, I don't know, like when I, after I graduated from high school in my early 20s, and I was like kind of living in all these different places across the country and in California and Colorado and Florida and whatever, and always wanting like my friends from home to come and like, you're going to think it's so cool out here, you know, and like no one could leave their shitty job at the deli because they'd all gotten a car the second they graduated from high school and they all got a new car and that's expensive. Or they, I think I came, I come from an area that's pretty working class. Um, and a lot of people want, you know, they grew up poor and what they want is kind of like a normal middle-class lifestyle and the way that feels accessible to you when you're really young before you have very much like earning power is through buying stuff, right? And so I don't think that they're like wrong or bad or stupid. I think they were doing, they were trying to achieve the thing they wanted with the tool that was available to them at the time. You know, credit cards are a great tool. I use them for a lot of things, but if they're not, if they're not given to you alongside the tools that you need to understand them in a really comprehensive kind of like financial literacy, then eventually it's, they're not going to be a helpful tool. They're going to be like a ball and chain. And I yeah. feel like that really early was something I figured out. And I was very, I'm really thankful for that now. And I love the points that you made. So backtracking a little bit, I mean, you mentioned focusing on big expenses, uh, big leaks from your bucket, but then also not ignoring or letting go of the medium size to smaller, more leaks that can occur, that can add up. And then just kind of finding a balance on where you decide, hey, this leak is okay because it made me happier, truly, or this leak really is not necessary and I can just eliminate that. So I love that uh, aspect because we always debate, oh, should you worry about the big expenses or should I get my Starbucks coffee? And everybody goes back and forth on that debate, but I think it just depends on who you are and what makes you happy. Um, so I love that, that you pointed that out. Secondly, I agree with, sorry, Terry, what was the last part that you mentioned? Oh, like, oh, just kind of like, like growing up in a place where like most people were pretty poor, like most people oh, from yes. working backgrounds. And like the first, the thing when you're poor that you like, <laughs> like what if not the thing, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of things about being poor. Um, but like one of the things is that you don't have stuff that feels really normal, right? Like you're watching TV and you're like, you know, everything that you're sort of exposed to about like a typical American life, like you don't have any of these things. Mm -hmm. And so as you know, when you're young and you're first trying to like get like what looks like a middle-class life, like the first way you have access to any of those things is through debt and through credit. And so if you're, you know, you can be a really hard worker, but you know, the more, the more yeah. you buy, I mean, the harder it's going to be to be able to afford that. And so it kind of actually getting the things that we most associate like visually, right, with being kind of like a middle class American can actually really prevent you from actually kind of like developing the things that make life more secure as a middle class rather than like working class. Person. Yep. And and you put into words what I was struggling to figure out myself, but I think we were trying <laughs> to say the same exact thing. 
it's kind of like a self-fulfilling uh, deficit or prophecy that happens. You know, you want something, so you try to go for it. And then that thing is not exactly the right way to approach it. So it keeps you basically treading water in a way with debt. Yeah. I mean, and I think that there's no one there telling you, like, the question of like, what can you afford is actually, I mean, to some degree, it's really easy. Like, if you don't have the money for it, you can't afford it. But there's lots of our, lots of our society and like lots of our lives are predicated on debt. I mean, the way we do housing, the way we do school in the US is predicated on debt. Most people are going, are taking out student loans. I mean, if it weren't for debt, we would not have doctors, right? Because it costs a half million dollars to get a medical degree. Um, And so there's a, a lot of reasons why we wouldn't really like question the role of debt in our lives um, on an individual level, because it's, it's totally okay. in all these other levels and like everybody wants a good credit score. Everybody's always working to get a good credit score. So why do you need a good credit score? If you're not going to borrow money. Right. Right. There, I don't think that there's any place where people just get the basics of a financial education. Like, I don't know. I mean, I think what it like, <laughs> I think about my sister who actually is in a completely different situation right now and is like 40 and about to pay off of her house and really went a totally different way. But her, I mean, what, she is extremely, she's kind of a Dave Ramsey follower and extremely debt averse. But part of it is because when she graduated from high school, she spent, she wound up in like, like $15,000 of credit card debt doing things that felt really normal to her, like being in her first apartment and furnishing it right? Like that's, that's kind of a normal thing to do, but there's no, you know, there's no financial literacy component that kind of shows you, great, here's your rent, here's your bills, you need to be contributing to an emergency fund. So take that off the top as non-negotiable. And here's what you have left, you know, to do for your credit card payment. But like people don't necessarily know that you can, do you know the magazine Finger Hut? No, I haven't heard of that one. It's like a, I mean, I think it's kind of marketed toward essentially low income people who don't have great credit, but it's like you buy a couch and the couch is like, let's say the couch is $2,000 and you can have it for only $14.99 a month. But like you're going to pay $14.99 a month <laughs> for like way beyond the life of the couch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But anyway, it's, it's in some ways it's hard because I feel like, you know, I certainly wouldn't make any of the, I was, I've been really lucky to not make those decisions, but I don't necessarily feel like they're stupid people or like bad people because they did do these things. Like you were saying earlier about marketing and like the amount we are being marketed to constantly. Every time we leave our house, every time we turn on TV, every time like we're, I mean, even just all the little ads, you know how you say something to your friend about a place you'd like to visit. And the next thing you know, it's like every ad on Facebook is like a trip to Jamaica or something. Yep. Yep. Um, but you know, there's billions of dollars spent trying to figure out the best, most effective way to keep people buying stuff all the time. So in some ways you're not like a terrible person. You just need to, like, you need to do what you said. Like you kind of have to like recognize that, that this is in play all the time and try to resist it so that you can be more in charge of like defining where you want to go with your finances. Yep. And it's, it's really hard too, because you see this beautiful couch that you just want to have and you work really hard and uh, it's hard to tell yourself or to tell anybody else that maybe they shouldn't have that couch because they haven't gotten there yet. Um, That's a hard decision. And with yourself, a lot of times you don't want to admit 
that you really can't afford that. You want to, you know, experience the luxuries of life sometimes. Well, transitioning to where you are currently and how you're helping increase financial literacy with everyone, the financial gym is what you're who you're currently with. Can you talk to me a little bit about their mission and what you do there? Sure. So um, I spent a lot of my adult life in education, in higher education specifically. And there's a lot of things I really liked about it because like, you know, you get to do the nine weeks of vacation. (laughs) Um, You get to have a month off every January and there's a lot of freedom. But, you know, at a certain point it started, I started feeling like I was having some pretty serious burnout and it was around the same time as I was really kind of like ramping up my interest in fire. And so I had sort of become this kind of like unofficial financial advisor for like lots of my friends, my coworkers, because it was, it's really interesting. And my coworkers in higher education, it's like, this guy's got a PhD, but really he doesn't really know how his student loans work. Do you know what I mean? And like people Mm -hmm. are like, you know, you can have gone to school (laughs) for 10 years, which is what's required of you to get a PhD, but like not necessarily ever take a class on financial literacy. And so I had sort of, started like stepping in and helping people like walk through all this financial stuff or try to set up a budget or try to work out like the best possible option for people with like their loan repayment. And um, along the way, I had heard about Financial Gym through a podcast that I was listening to. Um, I think the first FIRE podcast I was really listening to was Listed Money Matters. Mm-hmm. I've heard and, of them. Yeah. And at the time, Financial Gym and Listen Money Matters had like teamed up to have their holiday party and they were having like I think it was like Financial Gym's holiday party and then maybe Listen Money Matters their listener appreciation party or something and so I just went which is funny because it's a little unlike me I don't normally just like go to a social event where I don't know anyone I don't know but for some reason I think I was feeling a little like lonely on the path at that point in time and I was like maybe I'll meet other people who are into this too and nobody at work wants to hear about like my, you know, max out my 401k. You know what I mean? Like, it's of not, course. yeah, <laughs> that's not something that you can get any empathy on. Oh, you max out your 401k and now you're feeling poor. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I raised my saving rate by 2%, you know, yeah. like nobody cares. Um, it's much more interesting to like go to brunch. <laughs> like, <laughs> I completely um, agree. It does get lonely on the fire path if you don't have that, <laughs> that community to vent with. It does. And so, I had found out about Financial Gym that way. And then I realized I was like sending, like I was recommending it to tons of people who I felt like could use it either because like they were really in debt and probably needed an objective person who wasn't me, like their close friend to help them or people who were like doing really like a lot better financially, kind of like my situation, right? Like where all of a sudden my like income quadrupled and I was like, hey, I want to be as smart about this as possible, but I'm not sure who to ask because like our finance industry operates kind of like, 1950s way I think a lot of the time where it's just like you see this white guy in a suit and hand him your tax returns and then (laughs) you know every year he gives you a folder and you you hope he's doing a good job and he takes a commission right like that's not what a lot of people that's not what how people that doesn't make people feel empowered about their finances you know and so I feel like I was sending people from like across the spectrum the financial spectrum to financial gym or recommending them And at the same time, I was really burning out at work. And it's really actually hard to leave academia because if you think about like how school is structured, like you're in it for a year, you know, like you have a year contract or a semester contract. So there's no such thing as like, 
putting in two weeks notice because you found a good opportunity and you want to transition jobs. But I was grading finals um, a couple of Mays ago. And I, you know, looked up from my grading, which was going on forever. And I saw like an email, I was procrastinating. And I saw an email that said like financial gym is hiring. And it was at the same time that I was like wrapping up the semester and I opened the email and I was like, we're looking for people. Here's what, you know, here's what this would look like. And it felt so natural for me to step in from finance, from higher education into like financial education and empowerment. And the timing was so right. I just kind of knew that it was going to work. And even I remember writing my cover letter and I was like, Hey guys, it's me. I'd like to come work for you now. You know, like the tone was very much like, <laughs> let's, let's make it happen. <laughs> this feels like a really obvious next step for me. And so, yeah, I started working with Financial Gym. And basically what Financial Gym does is it provides um, our clients with financial plans that help them reach their goal, right? And so I kind of joke that we really put the personal and personal finance because we don't just want like your tax return and your pay stub and your W-2s. Like we actually want to sit down and have a conversation with you and say like, hey, Chris, where are you today? How did you get there? What are you happy with about where you are today? And what would you like to improve? Where do you see yourself? What would be a great financial place to be in three years? What about other areas of life, right? And so we integrate all of this, all this information about what you want, right? Yeah. <laughs> what, the life that you want to live. And we try to give you a financial plan that will get you to that life. And I think that that's really different. I mean, obviously, you're a fire person. You know that every calculator in the world exists already, like the mortgage calculator and the credit card cal and the student loan and when can I retire and the fire calc and everything. But those things are actually really different for people, right? Like I know a lot of people who are going to experience some kind of, um, they're going to have some kind of responsibility taking care of their parents. There's other people who are never going to have that responsibility. Um, there are people with really different money mindsets, right? Like I had extreme financial anxiety for a lot of my life because I grew up in a situation where we might not have enough really basic stuff like food, right? And so like I had to sort of come to terms with my own financial anxiety and like changes in my life so that I could look at money in a different way like you were saying how sometimes people like they're actually like saving too much money and they're it's kind of, you know, holding them back from other opportunities. Mm -hmm. But we look a lot, we look at the context for people's lives and we do what we would call like very goals, like very goals based approach to financial planning. And ideally the people we work with define where they want to go. And we're kind of like a, G, a financial GPS that tells them, like how they can get to where they're going to go and like kind of like the speed you can get there if you choose different routes. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like with the fire thing. Okay. Well, if you want to retire at 65, like you can keep putting, you know, your 4% match in your 401k and whatever. If you would like to have the freedom to stop working sooner, you need to be, you know, you need to be saving $2,000 a month. Right. Yeah. And I love that because you're taking into consideration so many different factors. Like you said, a person's uh, anxiety or feeling about money or their history or maybe their goals. Some people do have to factor in taking care of their parents or grandparents. Some people don't. Um, some people want kids. Some people want a home. Some people don't. So that all really makes a big difference. And 
that's why it's really hard to just give one set of advice to people who are on the fire journey or in personal finance in general. I think the only thing that you might be able to say universally is spend less than what you make. That's yeah. <laughs> kind of all, the only one, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely financial best practices. Like, no one's getting getting out of here at financial gym, like, not saving for an emergency fund, right? And, like, there are pretty standard elements of the advice for, like, how much of an emergency fund you should have and et cetera. But there, you know, you do get to, beyond the basics, there's a lot of freedom to, to make those choices. And I feel like I... I feel like I was super fortunate to sort of like come from where I came from and get like, I don't know, like develop some of the financial habits that I had that gave me a lot of freedom and have this mindset of like, when I was younger and like traveling a lot, when I would kind of like, like I said, I would like bartend for a few months, save all the cash and then see how long I could travel for it and come back and like kind of rinse and repeat. (laughs) Um, That was actually... That actually built, I mean, that was like maybe not super advisable if it were, if, you know, anybody listening, financial gym would not advise you to do that and not have any money being invested in the background. Although I did always have an emergency fund to come back to because you can't just like come back to New York and get an apartment with no money. But at the same time, it was super helpful because like, I don't know, I was traveling in Southeast Asia. It was like I could travel on $15 a day at the time, right? It was like a $6 hostel, some transportation here and there and food was like two bucks. So every time somebody was like, hey, Terry, do you want to go out to this restaurant? I could look at the menu, know it was going to be 45 bucks to get out of there. And that's three days in Cambodia, right? Like I would much rather extend my trip to Southeast Asia than go for another like mediocre, I don't know, diet, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so it all goes back. It's too bad. I love Thai food. I don't know why I always go back to this Thai food. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I like, I, I felt really lucky to have developed those muscles early on. And then also I think the same things that made me want to be a teacher, which was basically, you know, really having a sense of how much power education has and how much freedom it gives you to kind of like shape your life and understand your world. Like having financial education also has just so much to do with how much freedom you experience in your life. And I feel like there's a lot of really entrenched patterns that sort of perpetuate kind of like who gets left out of that education, right? Like typically if your parents have no money, you're probably not going to get any education about fi- about investing because there was never any money to invest. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. Probably if your parents, I don't know, like probably dep- like where you come from has a lot to do with like what you wind up just sort of like getting in terms of education kind of like naturally, right, without having to research that. And so I think for the same reasons I wanted to teach, because I, you know, helping people kind of like live their best lives. And I don't mean that in the cliche way. I mean, in a very real way, right? (laughs) Um, The financial gym lets me do that too, because people, this is an empowering process. I'm sure you agree. I mean, I don't know very much about your, your fire background, but when I realized when I had that crappy job, in the art handling company where I was yelled at by rich people's assistants every day, all day, it was really a big deal to have FU money that I could walk out the door. And I was like, that's, I am never doing this again. And I was actually able to have what I still consider to be kind of like the best job of my entire life, which was like doing volunteer disaster relief. (laughs) Um, And like, you know, having a huge impact in that way you know, I like wish everybody has that freedom, right? Like to just kind of like write their own story and 
and live the life they want to, but it's kind of easier said than done because there's not necessarily always a, we don't necessarily always know if we can trust the places that we go online for financial information. I mean, you and I both know that if you try to Google, like get out of debt, like a really wide swath of information comes up. Some of it's really predatory stuff. Some of it's like decent advice. Some of it's great advice. Some of it's bad advice. Right. But, um, it fulfills the thing in me that wanted to teach. It just is doing it in a different part of life. Mm-hmm. Well, and I will second everything you said about the FIRE movement and how it empowered you. Uh, it's empowered me as well. And although I don't have quite the FU money that I wish I had, um, the <laughs> emergency and the investments that I do have and I've built up every year that goes by, I do feel that empowering just growing and, and just it is a good feeling to be on. So that's part of why I fell in love with the FIRE movement as well. And when an opportunity to kind of collaborate with you, Terry, have you on the show, and I read more and more about the financial gym, uh, and I said, you know, should I present them to my audience? I don't do that lightly, but I really do feel that what you guys are doing over there is, is great. It's really taking a personalized view of personal finance for anybody. And you guys are doing it for normal people. These are not high-end clients who, you know, are the one percenters that can afford this advice. You're doing it for anybody who needs the advice and wants it. That was what really made me say, okay, this is a great opportunity and, and I have to have, you know, 100% support for them. So thank you so much for coming on and just giving us that, uh, you know, background being so open to your story as well. Is there anywhere that people can find more of you, Terry, or anywhere that you'd like them to go? Sure. For one thing, you can visit Financial Gym. And so just financialgym.com. We have a ton of super helpful resources for people on the Financial Gym website. And, you know, we, I do really consider myself, and I think we all kind of consider ourselves joking around when people ask us like, well, what do you do as a financial trainer? And it's like, oh, it's kind of like a financial advisor for normal people, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, we, I have clients who make $20,000 a year and I have clients with like $2.5 million in assets who want like a, a second pair of eyes on their early retirement plan, right? And so we really can work with like a wide variety of people. Check out our website. We have a lot of, content like investing 101 webinars we have meetups we have opportunities to kind of talk to people in like a informal setting with like meet the team kind of events and personally i don't know where your listeners are but it kind of doesn't matter right now because of covid um i work with a couple of different meetups and they are just basically they were new york city fire meetups and so we used to get together in person drink beer eat doritos and talk about money. Um, Now we do the same thing, except for we do it from home with Zoom. And so if you are on Meetup, like meetup.com, you can look up NYC Fire. And more recently, we've created um, like a women's meetup. um, And that happens, the co-ed meetup happens monthly. And then the the, uh, (laughs) women's meetup happens every other month. But if you just look up NYC Fire Meetup, you can find that. And that's a super fun space. I mean, I think that having community during part of this journey makes it feel a lot less lonely. Like if you don't have anybody to talk to about your wins and your questions and your strategies and how 
you know, you're tweaking things. Eventually, hopefully your finances do get pretty boring at some point because you're like automated everything and you're just like, you know, Tanya Hester from Our Next Life calls it the, the middle year slog where like, you know, like it's just the part where you wait <laughs> for mm-hmm. your assets yep. to grow. The patience, already- patience part yeah. is the hardest part sometimes. <laughs> you're already doing all the right things, but those meetups are super fun and it's typically like, it's just a bunch of cool, smart people who are living similarly unconventional lives. And as people open up and talk about where they're at and what they want to do, it's really amazing how cool people in this community are and how many different experiences people have had and want to have and what their goals are. And it is a fun time. And if anybody wants to get in touch with me, my email is terry at finjims.com. I can, I don't know if that's helpful, but uh, happy to be of help if you want to know more about Financial Gym or the meetups or whatever. Well, I will put a link to the Financial Gym in the show notes below. And uh, the Doritos, beer, and talking about money seems awesome. Those are like the, my three favorite things to do. So, <laughs> uh, But yeah, and um, thank you again. I want to just reiterate the importance of going to somewhere like the Financial Gym where they already get it. They already understand FIRE. So you don't have to explain it to them and what type of unconventional financial goals you may have. Um, yeah. So that is huge. And it's good to have somebody to talk to with no skin in the game. Like when we were talking about the housing thing, right? Like if the only people you talk to are people who are making a commission off the decision you make and the size of the loan that you get and how expensive the house that you get is, it's, you know, it's hard to know that that information is really unbiased, but like, we are just here to help you achieve what you want, which, and we don't, you know, like we're a membership service you can cancel at any time, <laughs> you know, we're not worried about, we're not, we're not here in a commission. And so if you want, we're, we're just like somebody who has your back as you make those decisions and hopefully makes it an empowering process for you. So you just feel more empowered to make those decisions as you go through life. Well, thank you so much, Terry, again, for joining the show. And uh, until next time. 